Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we take a closer look at congestion pricing. San Francisco has paused for a couple of years now. It's planned to charge cars to drive downtown at certain times of day. But famously car-centric Los Angeles plans to unveil its plan for congestion pricing as soon as next month. This hour, we'll learn about LA Metro's proposal to charge for driving on freeways and busy city streets. And hear from you, do you support congestion pricing? Would it encourage you to take public transit? Or do you think it's the wrong way to address the dire predictions of a traffic-congested, smoggy future? Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Transportation planners in California's major cities worry about more crushing traffic congestion in the decades to come. Already, the average driver in San Francisco spends about 97 hours stuck in traffic each year. That estimate was 95 hours in Los Angeles. To ease urban traffic, London, Stockholm, Singapore, they all use congestion pricing or charging drivers to use busy roads or at certain times of day. But it has yet to be implemented by any U.S. city. That could change. LA Metro next month plans to release its proposal for congestion pricing downtown and on LA's clogged freeways. We learn more about their plan and how you feel about congestion pricing as part of Forum's In Transit series. But joining me first is our series partner, Ethan Elkind, Director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. Hi, Ethan. Hi, Mina. Good to be back with you. Always glad to have you on. And as always, Ethan, lay the groundwork for us. What's the theory behind congestion pricing as a way to reduce gridlock? Well, the theory is that if you charge drivers to access a certain area or potentially a lane during times of peak congestion, you're going to decrease that congestion. It's pretty straightforward economic theory, and we've seen it in practice, as you mentioned, in a number of cities around the world. And basically, if you want to reduce traffic, this is really the only way to do it. I mean, you could certainly build alternatives to traffic like bus lanes and and rail transit, things like that. But ultimately, putting a price on traffic during peak times discourages people from driving during those times and encourages them to 
drive at other times. So drive during off-peak hours to sort of spread out the driving. You can also potentially use the revenue from that pricing to fund car alternatives. So you can fund things like improved transit service, better sidewalks, free transit, things like that. But it's basically all about charging a price. And that's done through a variety of uh, technological means. So transponders, cameras, fast track or easy pass type uh, passes with using overhead gantries to charge people to enter a certain mm. geographic area at crowded yeah. times. Well, we already use that to charge people to use like carpool lanes or HOV lanes, but that's not congestion pricing, right? Not exactly. I mean, there's some debate about what it actually means, but it, it basically would be cordoning off an area, a certain geographic area that you want to try to reduce traffic in. Maybe you want to encourage safer walking and biking. And around that area, you'd put that boundary and then it would charge drivers to enter. But it could also, as you point out, potentially be a lane. And we do have that uh, throughout California now, opportunities to essentially buy your way out of traffic, buying your way into these high occupancy toll lanes and, and using uh, a fast track tight pass to to access the lane. But for it to be true congestion pricing, wouldn't all lanes need to be subject to the charge? Yeah, I think so, because that's the only way you decrease traffic throughout the geographic area. I do think things like higher tolls that we've seen in San Francisco area on the Bay Bridge during peak times, those went away during the pandemic, but and the high occupancy toll lanes during peak traffic times, that sort of gives drivers a, a psychological entrance to this basic concept. But we haven't really seen it fully implemented like we've seen in, in the cities you mentioned, Singapore, London, Stockholm, other places around the world like Milan, uh, other, other towns and Sweden actually have pioneered this, where the whole city center is basically under this congestion pricing. And we've seen pretty dramatic results. I mean, massive decreases in congestion, air pollution in these areas, enhanced transit ridership. So I think the results on the ground have actually been quite positive. It's just politically, it's very challenging to get these programs implemented because no one likes to pay for something that they previously got for free. Well, Julia... Latani or Latini tweets uh, that Milan, where I live, has had it for years. Turns out only the wealthy end up going into the center. That's one of the reasons it's controversial. People feel like it's actually just going to exacerbate inequities and only those who can afford to drive into the city center will do so. That is the big knock on congestion pricing, that this is essentially unfair. It's inequitable. It just allows the wealthy to opt out of traffic because they don't really care about these enhanced charges. Uh, but I actually think it's a little more mixed than that. Now, first of all, truly low-income people can't afford a vehicle, don't drive or take transit already. So they would actually benefit from uh, from this program because if the revenue from the tolling goes towards supporting transit, then their transit service is enhanced. And also there are some lower income people who do drive who could stand to benefit as well. Uh, because imagine if you're an hourly worker, let's say you're a landscaper or a house cleaner, and if you're stuck in an hour of traffic and that hour to you might mean $20, $25 of extra working that you could be doing and it costs you only $10 to buy your way out of that traffic, that might be a pretty good equation for you. So for some hourly workers who have to drive in during peak commute times, they could end up coming out ahead. And then there's also different ways to structure the pricing. It doesn't necessarily have to be inequitable. So for example, San Francisco was considering congestion pricing pre-pandemic. It's now abandoned that proposal because of the pandemic. Uh, but that would have been a, a downtown congestion pricing plan. And the 
the pricing, the tolls would have been tied to people's income. So only higher income people would have been charged uh, the tolls and at a graduating progressive amount. That was the, that was the proposal. It never obviously got finalized for those who live in the Bay Area know that well. But th there are different ways to uh, to remedy the inequities. And the last thing I'll mention on this is just that you can also potentially rebate the revenue from the program back to low-income people. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to address the equity concerns, but it definitely is one of the main critiques of this of this approach. Well, let's hear how our listeners feel about congestion pricing. And you can share your thoughts or questions by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And uh, we already got some comments ahead of the show. People have some feelings about this. Norton writes on Instagram, for example, Absolutely not. We already pay taxes that the politicians line their pockets with while they do nothing for us. Why are we being nickel and dimed for existing? We are literally just trying to get to and from the jobs we are trapped in by the financial rat race we have to run to meet our simple, basic needs. And then we got this voicemail from a listener named Sprague in San Francisco. High numbers of cars on city streets slow public transit vehicles and their riders. These high numbers of cars also discourage walking and bicycling by making these travel modes noisier, less pleasant, and less safe. They also make our cities less livable. In urban areas, including San Francisco, we are over-reliant on single occupancy vehicles and congestion fees should be introduced to encourage and help subsidize more sustainable travel modes. So no U.S. city has implemented it yet, though New York seems to be coming closer, maybe has come close. I don't know if I should put that in the past tense and could be first. San Francisco has flirted with the idea, as you mentioned, and now L.A., the birthplace of the free way, has a draft proposal <laughs> by L.A. Metro that we're going to learn about after the break. Um, but uh, why would congestion pricing being implemented in L.A. be quite the coup? I think you mentioned that it would be a big deal for L.A. in particular to do it. It would be a very big deal for L.A. L.A. is really the first major car-oriented post-World War II city in the United States that really popularized and, and pioneered car-dependent living. Its growth patterns, while originally set out around a streetcar network were quickly engulfed by uh, the freeway network. The first freeway was built between downtown LA and Pasadena. Uh, and it really symbolizes car culture. And then with Hollywood, of course, it marketed that culture to cities around the world. And we've seen all the new cities since then, you know, the big high growth cities like Reno, Boise, Dallas, Houston, they've all emulated the Los Angeles approach. So, and of course, Los Angeles is just famous for, for traffic. I lived there for 10 years and experienced it firsthand. It really defines how you organize your day and live your life if you're an Angelino. So for LA to take this step now to say, look, the only way we're really going to solve this traffic problem is by putting a price on driving during peak times. That really sends a message, I think, to the rest of the country that this is a, a policy that other cities should be looking at as well. What could the climate impacts be of congestion pricing? Have we looked at that? 
Yes, the climate impacts are quite uh, significant potentially. And I say that because if you look at where California's carbon footprint comes from, it's almost half of our carbon emissions coming from driving. And that's the personal automobile driving that, that most of us do on a, on a daily basis. It's about 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions from those tailpipes. But then on top of that, the oil and gas production also and the industrial refining, all that, that's another 10%. So half of our carbon footprint comes from driving. And there are multiple ways to reduce the amount of driving that we do each day. Some of that is building more apartments closer to transit and jobs and services. That's important. Also, boosting transit investments is important as an alternative. But ultimately, putting a price on vehicle miles traveled makes a big difference. And that's what we've seen in terms of success in these cities that have implemented congestion pricing, major decreases in uh, in driving miles, traffic down 30 40% in some of these cases. Also, there's co-pollutants that go along with uh, carbon emissions. So we've seen decreases in nitrogen oxide emissions, particulate matter in these cities. And then the last thing I'll say, the other big benefit is in your voice message from your listener referenced this, that when you decrease traffic in a city, it makes it much more inviting to ride a bike, to walk. It's much more calm city center. And that also encourages alternate ways to get around people biking, taking transit and walking uh, as opposed to driving. Well, Dan on Discord writes, it's worth asking what's happened with San Francisco's own exploration of congestion pricing. I believe the city began its first study of the idea more than 15 years ago. And for years after that, the idea and the research just sat there. San Francisco County Transportation Authority, the city's state-designated congestion management agency, launched another study project before the pandemic. The study is currently paused. Dan is absolutely right. And you mentioned because of the pandemic. So why exactly... Is the pandemic affecting San Francisco County Transportation Authorities, um, basically their their progress on implementing this plan? Well, this is basically a story about the collapse of downtown San Francisco and the collapse of the commuter uh, work environment downtown. And so as people in San Francisco has really been a leader in, in working from home and and not telecommuting, not coming back into the office, we've seen downtown really suffer. So the congestion isn't quite there anymore. You saw the Bay Bridge kind of abandon that peak hour tolling. Uh, and that's really, I think, the big reason. But the other part of it is your, your uh, caller, Norton, who really is opposed to this. There is a lot of political opposition to this kind of approach. So between the pandemic and the politics, San Francisco has put congestion pricing on ice for now. Well, we did reach out to SFCTA and they said when it resumes their downtown congestion pricing study, the study will use public feedback and technical analysis to shape a fair and effective congestion pricing recommendation for San Francisco. So there it is, Dan. And we want to hear from more listeners, 866-733-6786. Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about congestion pricing this hour, charging a fee to drive busy roads at certain times of day. With the goal of reducing traffic gridlock, it's part of our in-transit series, looking at the transportation challenges facing California, especially in the face of climate change. And we're joined by Ethan Elkine, Director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law, also host of the podcast Climate Break. And I also mentioned that we will learn more about LA Metro, LA County's Transportation Agency and the release of its study of which parts of the region could benefit most from congestion pricing. And here to tell us more about that is Mark Valianatos, Executive Officer in the Office of Strategic Innovation at LA Metro. Mark, really glad to have you on. Thanks for including us. So help us understand initially, what are LA's thorniest problems or what's unique to LA that you were trying to address? Well, Los Angeles does, as Ethan mentioned correctly, have a long history of centering automobiles and our transportation planning and systems. And we also, as a result, have some of the worst traffic congestion uh, in the country across multiple parts of the county, which has 10 million residents. And so as part of the agency's overall goal of making it easier for people to move around the region, we are looking at whether and how pricing can help address congestion in some of the worst traffic clogged parts of the county. Um, And so we've looked at, originally looked at 14 possible parts of the county and different concepts we're doing congestion pricing, narrowed those down to five and did a first round of analysis during during the pandemic. And then because of the the travel changes, the work from home, um, we then did a second round of modeling for three areas, which are what we're preparing to present to the public soon, as you mentioned. All right. So where would congestion pricing happen? What would it look like in your city? Just give us a few of the the big arteries or or areas or zones that you're focused on. Our study is looking at three areas in particular. One is the Santa Monica Mountains between the San Fernando Valley, which is a major population center, then over the mountains into the west side of LA, into into the central basin of the city of LA. And to capture the trips and the congestion that occur in that area, we're looking at doing pricing on three freeways and 12 arterial canyon roads. And the reason we're looking at all of those roadways is to avoid, if you just price one or two, you can have people then divert off to avoid the toll and sort of you know create greater congestion in, in the smaller roadways that go across the mountains. And so this is an interesting concept because it does capture a sort of broad part of the county that has bad congestion. Um, and it would be sort of an innovative way of doing it because as Ethan mentioned, often the cities with existing pricing are focused on this cordon circle around it, circle around kind of a, a business center. So we're excited to analyze that. We also are looking at a, a cordon around downtown LA that would include the service streets that cross over the freeway ring around downtown. And then also include sort of arms of freeways um, that, that also circle uh, downtown LA. And the final option we're looking at is the 10 West, which is a freeway between downtown LA and Santa Monica on the coast. So it'd be yeah. a single freeway option. 
So you're you're saying that you would cordon off areas and that you'd also try to focus on especially freeways that uh, would be all lanes basically would be priced to be able to ride them at certain times. You would also be focused on alternative routes and trying to make sure that those don't end up getting clogged by people trying to avoid driving on the freeway. Did I hear that right? Yes, in some cases. So, so especially in the Santa Monica Mountains concept, if we price just one or two or three freeways across it, someone can easily divert off and go into a canyon road that goes through residential neighborhoods in areas that we don't, to be honest, have a lot of great existing transit in because of their geography. Yeah. So by pricing the entire set of roadways that cross over that, that the, the Santa Monica Mountains, we're able to sort of bring the benefits of congestion reduction more broadly. Um, and then if that concept would move forward, the challenges would be sort of twofold for that one. Um, we would need to, before launching congestion pricing there, if this is advanced, we would need to uh, invest in bringing sort of a richer set of transit or other ways to move around that region. Because as I mentioned right now, it doesn't have a lot of rail or bus services. We do have one subway that crosses over, but not a lot of other alternatives. The other interesting consideration is the people who live up in those areas, because it's not a walkable area where you can say, you know, cross the street and go to a grocery store, they may depend on taking short trips in and out of the zone. And we might want to consider not fully pricing those because we don't want to penalize someone for having to go to a, drop off their kids at school or go to the grocery store every day. Um, this is a contrast to say the downtown LA model where there's rich transit, increasing network of bus lanes and bike lanes and the like. Um, and so it's a more traditional area for congestion pricing. We do have some of the same issues that, that Ethan mentioned about the impacts of COVID on the downtown and the office market there. Yeah. And some stakeholders feelings that why would we, why would we, sort of, you know, just focus on pricing people coming into their business district during this time. But we think there's benefits and we could use reinvestment to actually help advance stakeholders' visions of the future of downtown LA, which may be more, you know, more mixed use, more residential, more 24-7 type of community. So I think that we can do it in a way that could potentially, you know, enhance everyone's goals. And just before I continue, just wanted to say that we are in a study phase. Yeah. Our to go next year to our board ideally to recommend one or more options that they could potentially advance forward. And then we need to do a whole second round of the formal environmental process, the federal federal environmental review, state CEQA review and the like. And so that would be the time which we do the final designs of any potential concepts. Um, so I just wanted to assure Victor yeah. in LA that we're not about ready to <laughs> things. We are coming up with the concepts that could potentially be approved by our board to move forward into a formal design process. Um, so there'll be plenty of time for all stakeholders and the public to weigh in if that happens. Right. You are releasing the results of your study and recommendations of your study next month. Is it? Is there a hard date set for that? Or Well, we're releasing the, the results of our first two rounds of modeling to get public input. And then by the end of the year, early next year, to have these concepts fully developed to be able to go to our, our board next year and they would decide whether to advance them to, to this formal environmental phase in design. So we still wanna hear feedback from people who live in these areas, for people who travel through those areas. We wanna make sure to center the input of communities and the type of riders who we don't usually hear for in transportation projects, including our bus riders, including low-income communities who are already harmed by inequities in the roadway system in terms of suffering the worst exposure to pollution, 
having the most crashes and injuries and fatalities, having a history, obviously a tragic history of freeways being, you know, dividing low-income minority communities. So we have, we believe that congestion pricing can, both through improving the roadway system and through reinvestment can sort of help heal some of the harms that transportation has caused in the past. And we're excited about that. And to Ethan's point and to your point about uh, whether it's equitable to charge all, all drivers, in our first round of modeling, we did assume in the model that everyone would pay. But for our second round of analysis, analysis we specifically exempted low-income drivers and vehicles with three or more people inside it. So we wanted to see how that would affect the results. And so we're looking already intentionally at centering equity, centering sustainability, encouraging carpooling and the like. Um, but we want to go to the public and ask what they value. Should we maximize congestion reduction? Should we maximize exemptions for vulnerable populations? How do we design the best possible set of concepts? And then we'll take those to the board for their consideration. Yeah. Well, Michael writes, congestion pricing for automobiles is yet another misguided strategy to keep as many cars on the road as possible, and it ends up costing those who can least afford it to pay the price, essential workers. They are not at liberty to adjust their schedules to avoid traffic and have already been priced out of living in city centers, being forced to commute long distances during high commute times. An honest solution to the problem would be to greatly expand public transit, making automobiles unnecessary. So this person is focused on the equity piece of this. Annabelle in Berkeley join us. Hi, Annabelle. You're on. Hi. Hi. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I think that any sort of congestion pricing really needs to be contingent on having free and affordable public transit options for folks. Um, in a place like London, it makes complete sense. There's trains coming in from the suburbs. There's places, you know, that you can catch intercity trains. Um, even in a place like San Francisco, it might make more sense. But you know, to charge folks who are coming out from the East Bay, from the Valley in L.A., um, it just doesn't make sense when there's no alternative. It, be- it ends up becoming a regressive tax for those who can least afford it, um, and we're just not there yet. So I think that, you know, just like the previous comment said, we really need to be investing in public transportation before we begin having any of these conversations. While it's fine to, you know, to study this, you know, number one, we're in a flux, you know, t- period where, We're not even sure what companies are doing. We're seeing large companies bring people back into the office hybrid. Who knows if that's going to last or if it's going to revert back. So I really think we need to slow the conversation down, build out our public transit, and then figure out how we can replicate a system like London, um, which has been wildly successful, but only because they have this, of course, in place. And I would just hate to see something like this fail when we're trying to achieve a common good. Annabelle, thanks. So, Mark, is the plan to, uh, if this were to go forward, that that basically the priority would be to build out public transit uh, where needed before you actually implemented congestion pricing? Because I know that people have been saying that congestion pricing, the revenues from it would go toward beefing up public transit. Um, or is it, are you thinking it would be concurrent or just curious where that is in terms of your thinking? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question and, and people should be focused on that. First, Metro is already expanding transit in terms of building new rail, um, you know, trying to improve bus operations and center customer concerns. But yes, one, we, we view this study as having kind of three, you know, three pillars. One is affordable pricing that helps uh, solve traffic congestion with all benefits in terms of um people saving time in their day, spending more time with their family, but also speeding up our buses, also protecting 
people from air pollution, reducing collisions and deaths. There's a lot of public benefits that can come from it. But we know the other two pillars, one has to be reinvestment of any net revenues in a way that does provide more high quality options in places where there aren't uh, enough already. And we wanna have those in place before we would launch this program. Um, and it can be a combination of more, you know, more money for operations, for better frequency of existing bus and rail. It could be new systems. It can be um, in places where it supports biking and walking as an alternative. We can invest it in street improvements along with our city partners. And then the third pillar is what I've already described in terms of centering equity and centering low-income assistance programs. And again, this could be exemptions, partial exemptions, uh, a monthly budget for people to get reimbursements if they're low-income. Um, we're doing a pilot of a mobility wallet right now in South LA where we give people money every month to ride public transit, but also private mobility services. So there's a multiple ways that we can make sure that we don't um, disadvantage low-income drivers or populations and make sure that we're not discouraging any essential trips on their part. So we're trying to balance all those together and yeah. build the best possible model. No, that's a lot. I have seen concerns that carve-outs uh, could mean that everyone else has to pay more. Is that something that's playing out in your modeling, in your study? We, the way that we're looking at pricing, and I describe it as affordable pricing, because what we're trying to do is have the, what is the lowest possible toll that will get enough people to divert their driving habits Maybe, you know, to, to switch times, as Ethan said, or if you want to go to the grocery store for one thing, maybe you wait till the next day when you buy more things, because you really only have to divert about 10 to 15 percent of trips to have the, the roadways flow a lot better, bringing the benefits I mentioned. Um, and so when we did our second round of modeling, we did not try to raise the prices a lot to bring it back up to the first round modeling results. We acknowledge there's a trade off when you start exempting maybe low income drivers or HOV, three plus like we're, we're looking at, or other, other types of drivers, you will get slightly less traffic reduction. But we still see in our second round, like good results. We see in some cases, mm. in some of the models, 30 or 40% reduction in, in you know, time stuck in traffic, for example, in delay. So we can still get good results while also centering um, equity and, and making the right exemptions. Well, this is writes great idea if there is a place to park your car and get on a bike or other public transportation. And if people feel safe waiting for the bus and riding on the subway, especially at night. Another listener on Discord writes, I'd love to hear where the funding from congestion pricing could go, in particular to bike lanes, say, on the Bay Bridge, SFMTA, and other transit agencies. How much would be dedicated? Do you have a sense of this, Ethan, in terms of where the funding for congestion pricing could go in some of the areas that this listener is pointing out? Well, this is really the key thing is where do we spend the money? And I think, you know, your listeners like Annabelle uh, referencing the need to bolster transit. That's all. Those are all points really well taken. However, to improve our transit, we need money. And right now, transit is pretty badly underfunded in this country. Uh, it's heavily reliant on local measures. We're looking at systems like uh, BART really heading for a fiscal cliff when it comes to transit funding, even with some recent state uh, funding packages. So if we want to see this 
you know, the sort of transit alternative exists, we need to find other sources of revenue. And I think that is one of the uh, reasons why you see a lot of people supporting congestion pricing, because it can provide that revenue for transit options. So San Francisco, they were considering all sorts of ways that they could spend uh, the money. And some of that was on free muni passes. It was on bike and uh, pedestrian safety measures. It was for things like enhanced school buses, obviously for bolstering transit. So if we want to see a safer transit, more robust transit, bike lanes, bus only lanes, things like that, all that takes money. And congestion pricing could provide a critical revenue stream for that. And I just want to be clear, the San Francisco County Transportation Authority's plan is on ice at the moment. There is a metropolitan transportation, um, an MTC study that is happening, the regional Bay Area study that is currently in place. And and those study results won't come out probably until sometime later next year. But could you just talk about what that study is looking at, Ethan? So for the the MTC study, I haven't looked at it in in as much detail, but there's a lot of different roads, essentially highways all around the Bay Area that could potentially be told uh, in different ways. And it's and like I said in the beginning, there are some lanes that already have these buy-ins where you can have high occupancy toll lanes. Uh, The MTC study is taking a broader look at the region. It's not just looking at downtown San Francisco. It would be all the major arterials, uh, major highways, I should say, around the Bay Area. So it's a much more comprehensive look. It wouldn't be about a one defined geographical area. And, you know, I'd also point out one of the differences between LA and San Francisco is that in San Francisco, you've got a, at least up until the pandemic, you've got a high concentration of employers located in our central cities and in, in, in San Francisco mainly, but also in, in places like Oakland. Whereas in Los Angeles, it's a little bit tougher because downtown LA has had a declining percentage of the share of regional jobs. And so even though downtown LA is in a lot of ways thriving uh, due to recent land use changes that have allowed more development in downtown uh it's a lot of a lot of it is residential development it's less commercial and so that that makes it a little more challenging when you're looking at at peak traffic time so the geography piece is really dependent on land use and that's why this mtc study is 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 going to be a little more limited in some ways because you're not talking about a congestion free zone so much but more about tolling some of the major freeways around the region yeah tolling 880 680 580 280 80 101 even potentially tolling the major other arterials to use a word but basically to limit diversion which was the issue that mark was bringing up uh things like uh sandbag avenues or frontage roads so that people could not use those. Uh, That's a pretty big deal. Um, And let me remind listeners that we are talking with Ethan Elkind of UC Berkeley School of Law, director of the climate program there, and Mark Valianatos, executive officer in the Office of Strategic Innovation at LA Metro. And we're talking with you, our listeners. What do you want to ask about congestion pricing? What are your thoughts or concerns? Would you want it in your city? How would it affect your commute if you're thinking that far out? How much would you pay to get out of traffic? You can tell us on our social channels at KQED Forum by calling 866-733-6786 and by emailing forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Congestion pricing has seen some success in cities like London, Stockholm, and Singapore, but could it work here in California? We're hearing what you think, and we're talking with L.A. County's transportation agency, L.A. Metro, about a soon-to-release study on which parts of the region could benefit from congestion pricing. Mark Valianatos is with us from their executive officer in the Office of Strategic Innovation and our In Transit series partner, where we look at the challenges, transportation challenges that California faces, is Ethan Elkine, director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment. He's also host of the podcast Climate Break, if you want to hear more of Ethan there. And of course, we're hearing from you, our listeners, sharing your questions, your comments about congestion pricing at 866-733-6786, online at forum at kqed.org and our social channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord. Nina writes, I live in Sunnyvale and often take Caltrain to go to San Francisco. If public transit where I live works so that it takes me where I need to go in a timely manner, then I would use public transit more. Encouraging to hear cities trying to trying on systems which encourage people to not drive and use public trans, transit, a usable and reliable public transit system must be in place, though. Another listener writes, it's disingenuous to compare driving in U.S. cities to cities like London, Singapore, and Milan. Those cities have well-managed public transportation systems which are able to ensure getting to work in a reasonable time. The U.S. is the real outlier. There is very little public transportation that covers the city. Please, no more tolls or congestion pricing until public transportation is built. Let me go to Chris in Santa Clara. Hi, Chris. You're on. Hey, um, hi. Good morning, Mia. Thank you. Um, You know, in Los Angeles, 100% of Los Angeles County residents live in Los Angeles County. But in the Bay Area, less than 10% of Bay Area residents live in San Francisco. And so I think from a, a practical governance perspective. This is the reality that's very rarely discussed. You know, these are, you know, might as well be two different countries when you're looking in terms of how they're run. You've got nine counties with 89 independent cities. San Francisco is the only joint you know, city and county. And at least my perspective from the South Bay is that well over a majority of the actual voters in San Francisco who have the right to vote how they want actively do not want San Francisco to be the center of the Bay Area in terms of employment. Mm. So how do you then, you know, recognize that the voters who are actually in San Francisco have no interest in bringing the other 8 million people from throughout the Bay Area into San Francisco on a daily basis because they're exhausted. They like their suburban side of their city. And that's okay. I mean, we I think those of us who like live in the South Bay, we respect that. That's their choice to aggressively not want people coming in every day. So I wanted to kind of toss that out there because I think there's a reason that downtown 
is kind of falling apart. And that's because the consistent message is we don't want you to come in and we're not going to clean it up. And if you don't live in the sunset or the Richmond, you're not going to enjoy being here. Uh, well, Chris, thanks. Ethan, let me get your take on Chris's assessment here of the Bay Area region and its challenges. Well, I think it's hard to generalize about San Francisco. I mean, certainly the political leaders in San Francisco have enjoyed the revenue from downtown businesses uh, being a center of employment. And I think as a region, I think all of us in the Bay Area benefit from having employment concentrated in downtown because it enables people to ride transit uh, comfortably and easily into downtown when that transit is available. I think the reason why we've seen downtown decline so dramatically really is related to the pandemic and the work from home policies. I mean, there are obviously other uh, issues going on in, in in San Francisco in general related to property crime and, and drug use and, and so forth. But I mean, it's primarily the work from home policies. I think, you know, L.A. in a lot of ways is a cautionary tale of what happens when you start to sprawl out your jobs. You know, when the jobs begin to decentralize, you get what's called horizontal density, which is basically a fairly dense urban area, but everybody traveling in all sorts of different directions. And then it becomes very hard to provide comprehensive transit solutions uh, in, in a region like that. So, I mean, certainly people in a neighborhood, they don't want change. They don't want outsiders coming in. I think that's pretty typical. But, you know, we can't make decisions as a region just constantly deferring to what, you know, an immediate neighbor wants. Uh, that's how we've gotten into a lot of our challenges in in the Bay Area and California as a whole. We've rejected a lot of housing proposals, for example, because immediate neighbors don't want to see an apartment building next to them. And I think if you want to have a region that works uh, in terms of the environment, in terms of quality of life, in terms of mobility, you've got to have have some order and arrangement of where the jobs are located and how the transit serves them. But I really would agree with the caller about the differences with the counties. Uh, this has been a reason actually why the Bay Area has transit uh, a lot and had rail transit a lot sooner than Los Angeles, because with Los Angeles County as one large county, it became very hard to have a consensus in such a large area around a rail transit network. Whereas in the Bay Area, we didn't need all nine counties to be in favor of BART. We just needed three counties, Contra Costa, Alameda, and San Francisco to, to vote to move forward with BART. And that's how that system got started a lot earlier. So there's pluses and minuses with different governance arrangements. But ultimately, we do need to think regionally if we if we want to solve some of these challenges. Well, the listener writes, please keep in mind that to say folks oppose things like congestion pricing because they don't want to pay for something they now get, quote, for free, is both simplistic and wrong. Taxpayers paid to build these roads and keep paying to maintain them. Nothing free about it. Another listener, Madeline, writes, most traffic in L.A. is commuter traffic. Look at a weekend and there's not as much. The traffic is from all the folks who have to drive in from Pasadena or where have you who can't be expected to take public transportation and who'd get punished by this. Sam writes, many poor people own cars. Many would not benefit from congestion pricing. It must be run like a lottery system or nothing else. And Dee writes, congestion is lose-lose. More pollution in poor neighborhoods and lost time for everyone. Only pricing can truly improve this. If revenues from pricing are committed to improving equity, it's win-win. Drivers save time. Non-drivers can be safer and air and noise pollution can be reduced for lower income areas. In fact, pricing is the only way to match supply and demand, but we must pay careful attention to directing recaptured revenues toward reducing transport inequities. Mark, what is your your hope for what a successful implementation down the line of a congestion pricing plan will create? I'm just curious because I think often 
with Dee's point, I'm kind of reminded on what the stakes are. Yeah, well, the last the last um, statement you read, I think, is really pointing in the right direction that we can um, really we can really finally have a tool that can address traffic in a way we've never been able to do in the United States before using traditional means of expanding roadways or um, even providing alternatives. Providing alternatives is Metro's mission and it's super important and we focus on that. But even in places, as some of your, some of your listeners have said, like London, um, where it has a giant underground subway system, you still have roadway congestion above in the most high demand areas. You need pricing to balance that out. And then to take the money and use it to do great things for low income communities that have suffered from air pollution, um, for our bus riders, we're stuck 40 on a bus behind a single person driving, um, for really getting the whole region moving and especially making sure that we, we expand our low income residents access to opportunity. Well, this listener on Discord writes, I'm wondering if planners would consider carpools as eligible for discounts. I am thinking of the casual carpool program in the East Bay, where strangers band together so they can use Bay Bridge toll discount lanes. Isn't going from four cars to one car the same as removing three again, three from the road, which is the whole point? Ethan, is that a possibility? Yeah, well, you heard Mark talk about that. It's one of the options that they're studying. Can they give a break to people who have, let's say, I think it was three cars, three passengers in the car? So there are multiple ways to to design these programs. And I think Mark outlined some of all the different ways, the different factors that they're looking at. But definitely you, you can you can toll based on these variables and you can give the revenue over in all sorts of different ways. So um, there are a lot of options to encourage carpooling. And that is absolutely an, an important way to reduce vehicle miles traveled as well. Well, Stephanie writes, I am a relatively young disabled person who has had to reduce work to part time because I need to go to so many doctor's appointments. I cannot walk far, ride a bike or take the bus. Has there ever been thought about thought given to discounts or lanes for those who are eligible for disability placards through our doctors? Mark, any thoughts about that? We have heard feedback from um, from stakeholders uh, with disabilities that we should consider um, again, full or partial exemptions, assistance programs, and we are doing so. And we, in fact, we at, at Metro, we have a subcontract with three, with four community-based organizations to reach kind of hard to reach stakeholders. One's focused on pedestrians, one on cyclists, one on working class families who may need to drive and one on people with disabilities. So we'll get, a, we'll get input on exactly those points and build them into the system the best way possible. Let me go to Noah in San Francisco. Hi, Noah, you're on. Hello. Um, I would just like to comment. Um, let's pay attention to this past segment and that there's only one caller or commenter who had anything to po- positive to say about this. And I'd like to point out a lot of the guests' statements as to kind of what this would do seem to be arguments against why this program or yeah, arguments against this program. Um, a lot of other callers have talked about the inequities on disabled or poor people. My question is, you talk about exemptions, but how are you going to, you know, dole those out? Do people then have to prove their income in order to not pay for traffic? And you say over and over again about, you know, expanding public transit doesn't work, but that that has never been tried in any meaningful sense. You know, we've had small improvements around various cities in the country, but we have to remember that, like, 
our public transit agencies were bought up and intentionally dismantled by car companies to force us onto a road. And they were built, these freeways were built through low-income communities of color and destroyed. And now you're telling us that we, the citizens who may have been affected directly by some of those freeways being built, the people who were forced into cars, spending thousands of dollars every year on insurance, taking risks, driving at 70 miles an hour on the freeway, this is preposterous. You cannot tell me that individuals trying to get to and from work in a time where everyone is uniquely financially stressed Mm -hmm. is going to help anybody. Well, no, I, yeah, sorry, finish your thought really fast. You had one last thing to say, please. That's all. Okay, well, I really appreciate your passion. And we actually have had more than one positive comment for congestion pricing. We did have the voice on that other comment about the need for it for a climate healthy future. But Ethan, do you feel like Noah is basically summarizing your perspective correctly here? Or is there anything you'd like to say? I mean, I share a a lot of what Noah is describing here. uh, And I I disagree, though, with the idea that we're saying transit doesn't work. I mean, transit is really important. And we should be investing more in it if we want to be able to meet our climate goals, quality of life, mobility goals, etc. The problem is we've underfunded transit and there's no real strong revenue model for it. And then beyond that, if you're trying to solve congestion, building transit alone doesn't work. Because what happens is you build transit alternatives, and potentially you're reducing some of the congestion on the road. But there's an economic theory that we've seen play out multiple times, which is called induced demand. And it's basically the idea that if traffic goes down, people are going to be encouraged to drive more to fill that space. So building new roads, building new lanes, and building alternatives to traffic alone is not going to solve congestion. Really, pricing congestion is the only way to reduce traffic. So I think that's that's an important point that I I really want to make that transit provides an alternative to traffic, but not a cure for traffic. And congestion pricing really is the only way to do it. And also, if we want to see people having robust, cheap alternatives to driving, saving them a lot of money in terms of how to, uh, in terms of having to afford a car, insurance, registration, gasoline, all that, we're going to need to invest in those alternatives. And again, that comes down to the question of where does that money come from? Because right now we are really badly underfunding it compared to the need. We're talking about congestion pricing um, in 2023. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And uh, let me read another comment here. Nathan writes, here is a solution. Stop flooding the streets with Uber, Lyft, and robotic drivers that have already been problematic. These disruptive industries are only making matters worse as working people like me are stuck dealing with the problems they create. And now the proposal is to charge us more? No way. Mark, what? How, how are you thinking about automatic vehicles, driverless cars, and so on in LA? As Nathan is bringing up, they have been, quote, problematic, and they have been put out by these, quote, disruptive industries. Well, Metro does not have regulatory authority over, over um, uh, TNCs or autonomous vehicles. We obviously collaborate with the cities who do and with the, with the state that does. So it's not within our direct purview. We do think about this as part of the mix of vehicles that might be driving. Um, again, if you have a traditional, if you'd have a traditional one one driver picking up one passenger type of ride under what we've modeled so far, there would be you know a charge to that to that ride. Um, so we're not trying to encourage uh, you know encourage or discourage really um, the use of those types of alternatives. We're focusing on how, how, as Ethan said, how do you get, how do you improve traffic, and how do you reinvest the money in great transit alternatives, in street safety, and in other improvements? Well, Ethan, you're 
really an expert on autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, and so on. I know, and you've looked at this a lot. What do you think about the impact and how that needs to be addressed? Well, actually, this is an interesting uh, kind of political dynamic that we saw play out with some of these congestion pricing proposals. And I'm curious maybe to hear from Mark how it's playing out in Los Angeles. But I know in San Francisco, the Ubers and Lyfts, these these uh, transportation companies, they were very much in favor of the congestion pricing because they know that their drivers can make more money, even if they have to pay those tolls to enter a downtown San Francisco. If you kind of weed out all the other drivers, that means that the Uber or Lyft driver can make a lot more money picking up more passengers and and conducting their routes faster. Uh, and so even with those tolls, they, they come out uh, far ahead. So that was actually one of the political factors, I think, uh, at least supporting the congestion pricing program in San Francisco. But in terms of autonomous vehicles, as Mark mentioned, you know this, this is something the state regulates. We just saw the state approve uh, a massive expansion of, of driverless taxis in, in San Francisco. And I think you know we could imagine a future with congestion pricing that essentially average people are not really driving into downtown anymore. What we have instead is a circulating network of uh, battery electric autonomous taxis that are moving people around in addition to biking and walking and, and transit options. Well, speaking of politics, do you have political support um, for congestion pricing? I imagine there's a lot of politicians who are really not wanting to take this up given how controversial it is and the the passions that it can bring up for people the the emotions the feelings a lot of it that we're hearing today on air mark yeah no we again our board our board of directors who are primarily local local elected officials will determine whether to advance um, our concepts from the study to more detailed analysis potential implementation um you know, my personal hope is that they would want to uh, to see the results of more detailed analysis and see how it works. Yeah. We understand we're hearing from a variety of stakeholders. We'll be dealing. We'll be doing public outreach to get to get an early filter of some of those of some of those concerns and hopes for this program and include them in our recommendations. Well, Ethan, whether or not it's congestion pricing, the predictions for the kind of future that we face with millions of people on the roads. <laughs> Could you just remind us what are the potential issues if people don't move away from single occupancy vehicles or drive less, or if they don't use other transportation modes like public transit? What what are we facing? And we just have less than a minute. Well, it's not great. I mean, from a carbon climate perspective, we're talking about a lot more pollution, uh, a lot more vehicle miles traveled. From an economic perspective, people are spending a lot of money on vehicles. They're idling, creating uh, you know, pollution issues, and they're spending a lot on on fuel. Uh, so that's a problem. And then just from a quality of life perspective, it means people are spending a lot of time stuck in traffic. They're not at home with their friends and families. They're not out there uh, potentially making more money to, to support them themselves and their families. So congestion really takes a toll on all of us and has major environmental and economic consequences. Well, Ethan, thanks so much for coming on and talking about this with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me back on. From UC Berkeley School of Law, host of Climate Break, Mark Valianatos, thank you so much for coming on as well. I can only imagine how much work a study like LA Metro has done requires. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Caroline Smith, for producing today's segment. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, 
the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.